Hello, welcome to the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. in Southern York County, Pennsylvania. You can join our morning live stream on Facebook or YouTube. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury. You can find more information about us at gfcshrewsbury.org. We are so excited to bring you this message today, and it is our hope that you will come to know and believe Jesus Christ more fully through it. Good morning, Grace Fellowship. Good morning. Um, Isn't it good to worship together and be together? Amen. Um, Before we dive into God's Word this morning, um, I wanted to remind you of the need that the the Grace Kids ministry uh, still has for actually this uh, service, the 11 a.m. service. Um, They still need volunteers uh, in order to bring uh, care uh, for kids so that your brothers and sisters in Christ can worship during this service. And so um, if that's something that you feel called to do or feel any kind of nudging, uh, I ask that you guys would uh, check out the table after the service. Uh, And the cool privilege I have uh, seeing as how I'm not on staff here at Grace Fellowship, I can kind of uh, relate to you uh, sitting in those chairs. And uh, I think two things when I hear those kind of needs week after week, and I know you're nothing like me. So you definitely don't think these things. This is just me, not you. Me, not you. But when I hear these needs kind of week after week and they haven't been able to start the 11 a.m. service yet because they don't have enough volunteers, I think, not you, I do, that uh, someone else will meet that need. You know what I mean? Like, ah, oh, someone is eventually going to meet that need and they're just good, good people. Good, good, good people. Uh, so I would, I, I would challenge you that maybe it, it needs to be you uh, who goes to the Grace Kids table, uh, not out of guilt, but out of joy uh, to serve. Um, and uh, the second thing I think, not you, uh, is sometimes at the end of the service, uh, I just want to go home because I am uh, lazy. Me, not you. So uh, if that's if I could just share any of that with you just to challenge you that at the end of the service, uh, that if you kind of have any nudging or just like an elbow from a spouse or something, uh, that you guys would go to that table at the end of the service, if that's you, and um, consider volunteering so that we could have Grace Kids for the 11 a.m. service. Does that make sense? Okay. Me, not you. All right. Um, well, good morning. I'm, I'm really uh, excited to jump into John with you. Uh, we've been traveling through the book of John together for um, many, many weeks now, and we'll continue here in John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, take it out uh, or grab your phone or whatever you use. It'll be on the screen, and we're going to read from verses 16 to verse 21. So I'll give you a second to do that, and then we'll begin to read. You can follow along as I read. Verse 16 in John chapter 6. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. I read that sentence weird. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, it is I, 
don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this account between you and your disciples. God, we thank you for every brother and sister in Christ that is here, no matter um, where they are or who they are. God, no matter what is going on in their lives, God, we just thank you that you receive us as we are. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our head, in our ears, in our heads, in our hearts, Lord, that you would just teach us what you have for us uh, this morning. More about you and more about who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week, uh, Pastor Mark and Pastor Ben uh, read the and uh, unpacked the feeding of the 5,000. And one of the things that they said was that uh, that's a relatively familiar story, right? And so this is Jesus walking on the water. So again, a really well-known, even just culturally well-known story uh, in the scriptures. And uh, you can see here, it's not, you know, the whole story fits on one slide. That's cool, right? So it's, this, is, this is only, uh, you know, five or six verses long. Uh, and it, but it's a rather dramatic event, isn't it? Right? There's, there, I mean, it's like there's not a lot, but you just, what happens uh, is a lot. And so why is this here? What are the things that we need to pay attention to? Why did John, the gospel writer, include this here in the way that he did? And one of the things that has always stood out to me about this story uh, was when it took place. It was in the middle of the night right? So this dramatic scene of Jesus out on the water, um, you know, with his disciples walking on water happens in the dead of night. Um, And one of the things I wanted to ask you is, uh, are there any grown uh, adults here who still can be made a little uneasy with the dark? Okay, one. So yeah, me neither. (laughs) Me neither, just that guy. Um, so anyway, I have a friend who's really made uncomfortable by the dark. Not me, you, not me. No, okay, no, I'm just kidding. So uh, no, but I look. If I let my if I let my mind wander, um, I can like still freak myself out a little bit at night. All right, confession. Like if I watch a scary movie at like two o'clock in the day, it's like a comedy. Okay, if I watch something like a little uneasy at night, you know, I might leave the hallway light on to keep tabs on the hallway, you know? I don't know, like I can get a little worked up. And I also, uh, for those of you that uh, have children, um, my uh, kids can make the night a little more creepy because they just do weird things sometimes to have these little humans doing stuff at night. And so, for example, I have uh, my son, Evan, he's three, and the thing he does recently and has been doing it for a while is he crawls out of his bed uh, and he just goes to sleep on the floor somewhere in the house. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like dramatic, but it's just a little weird because like he'll be in the hallway like at 2 a.m. just like slowly kicking the laundry door and you're laying there like, what the heck is that? Like, what is going on? And, you know, and then when you get up to, like, go to the bathroom or something, like, it's enough to, like, to make sure you avoid, like, the dog or whatever. But now I have to make sure I don't, like, step on my three-year-old who could be just laying anywhere. Like, you have no idea. It's like a really high stakes, like, where's Waldo at 2 a.m.? You know what I mean? Like, you don't know. And it, okay, so that's a little weird. And then I'm going to talk about my son Adam a little bit later, but one, the one thing that he does or used to do uh, 
quite a bit, was um, he would, same age, three or five, maybe it's the age, I don't know, but he would get out of bed and he would walk into my room, pitch black, right? And uh, I'm laying on my side and he would come right up to the bed and say nothing and do nothing. You just stand there looking at me and like you're sleeping, but you can like kind of sense that there's someone there. You know what I mean? And so like, I'm a light sleeper. And so like, I just like open my eyes and he's just like, he's like an inch from my face, you know? And so like, I don't move, but like my heart just like leapt out of my chest, right? And you're like, hey buddy, what are you doing? And he's like, I gotta pee. And you're like, okay. And he just turns around and goes to the bathroom and goes back to bed. And you're like, what was that? Why does he do that? It's it's, I don't know. All right. So, so, you know, I, so I can be a little bit made uneasy at the dark, but there I am in the safety of my house feeling like a little silly about the dark, right? And here, now like in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with a massive storm, with Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the night, right? It's pitch black. Like this, these details add so much important uh, I, you know, it just adds to it, like what is happening here and what the disciples would have taken away and what they would have experienced. And, and one of the things that's also important, that it's not even here, but it's really what happened beforehand. Uh, last week, Pastor Mark and Pastor Ben uh, talked about the feeding of the 5,000, right? So Jesus has this massive crowd that he's teaching to, and it says that he lifted his eyes and he saw this need. He saw that they were hungry. And so he calls his disciples and he says, hey, have them sit down and we're gonna feed them. And the disciples are like, you're crazy. And they, they bring them over uh, a boy with some bread and fish. And they're like, this is all we have. And Jesus kind of invites his disciples in. And he goes, I want you guys to disperse this food. He prays over it, and of course, Jesus multiplies the food and feeds 5,000 men and their families, if not more, and like, right? And it, it's this incredible miracle. In fact, it, it's a sign, and that's what John would call them. John, the gospel writer, would call these signs. This is the first sign. This is the second sign. This is the third sign, right? And a sign does what? It, like, it points to something, Right? And so what John the Gospel writer is saying, look, these signs, uh, it, not just for uh, them then, right, but for us today too, but when, when, as Jesus did these things, the Jewish people would see what he was doing and they would think back to Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament history of their people, and they would see how Jesus was uh, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy as the Messiah and it would bring clarity to who he was. And what, and what he was there to do and who he is today and what he is doing today. So it's for them and, and it's for us today as well. It's a sign. But uh, what happens with the crowd at the end of that story I think is really vital before we even dive into this is it says that after their bellies were full, right, they started thinking about how Jesus could be useful to them, right? In fact, it even says that Jesus knew that the crowd was about to take Jesus by force and make him king. And what does Jesus do? He runs away. He flees, right? He, like, he, he gets out of there because he doesn't want them to do that. See, Jesus' message, his purposes, would be so radically different, right? They're, they're trying to fit uh, uh, Jesus into their agenda, right? But Jesus was bringing a whole new agenda, a whole new kingdom. And so, uh, so he leaves and he, and behind it because look, Jesus did not come to, at that moment, he wasn't coming to or, or ever really just to heal Israel's economic, political, or social problems, right? So 
and, and no matter how bad they were. But instead, Jesus came to what? He was trying to communicate, I'm the bread of heaven. I'm here to bring eternal life, to conquer sin and death itself, to reconcile us to God. So do you see a large crowd that, that just doesn't get it in a powerful moment? So a crowd that wants to use him. They, they see the miracle, but they don't see the sign. They, they, have, they have full stomachs, right? They're thinking about bread, not the bread maker. And so now Jesus is going to go do something out on the water in response to what just happened. You see the connection. I believe this encounter out on the water was meant to be one of the many times that Jesus, listen, for the sake of his disciples and for us today, is bringing dramatic attention to who he is and why he came. The encounter is a response to a crowd trying to use him for their kingdom, their goals, their ambitions. And I think it's possible here that Jesus might be frustrated perhaps even angry that the crowd is seeking him as useful, useful for bread, money, health, prosperity, that he is useful to their stuff. They don't let their eyes see Jesus and his glory to say Jesus is our treasure. They didn't let it be a sign, but instead it was just a useful miracle. And so he sends his disciples out on the water and he's going to show them and us again who he is and why he's come. So is there a chance that you and I this morning need to see the same things that he was trying to communicate to his disciples? I think so. Last week we were challenged with this idea that we need to pick up our heads with the feeding of the 5,000, that we need to pick up our eyes and see the needs of those around us. And this week I think the challenge is for us to, to think of ourselves even more like the crowd and saying, man, do I not see what I'm supposed to see in Christ, who he is and what he's come to do. So there are three things that I'd like to show you. Jesus, I believe, is trying to demonstrate, one, that he is a holy God. Number two, that he is a powerful savior. And three, a wonderful counselor. And so first, a holy God. So Jesus sends his disciples out. John doesn't say that. You'll notice it doesn't say it here. But in the other synoptic gospels, we have a little bit of detail on this story. And we know that Jesus sends his disciples out on the water. And perhaps, listen, maybe he didn't want his disciples influenced by the, by the same misguided enthusiasm of the crowd, right? So it's like, why did he send them out in the middle of the night? You know, who knows? But he sends them out in the middle of the water and there's a squall in the Sea of Galilee, right? There's wind and waves. And, and, and they're three or four miles out. They're not making any progress. And likely, they're a little worried about what's going on. It's pitch black. But here's something that's really, really interesting. And I hope that you'll, you'll note this with me. It, it says that um, Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea had become rough and they had rowed for three or four miles. And it says that they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming towards them and then they were frightened. Do you see that? So it's not like they're scared to death because of the storm. They think they're gonna die and then Jesus comes out and they're like, yes, right? You're like, here he is, right? Instead, they're already worried. Jesus comes out to them and they are absolutely terrified, right? They're terrified at what they're seeing because look, First off, one of, the, one of the things that's really important here, like when we read the Bible, and we all do this, is we try to put ourselves like 
like in the boat with the disciples, man, what would I have been thinking? What would, like, and we try to think, what would they have been thinking? And one of the things that we do is, like, like with Old Testament and New Testament characters, is we think they're like, ah, like they're just more accustomed to this kind of stuff, you know? Like, yeah, it just would have been like an everyday thing to see someone walking on the water, you know? They're used to these miracles and, you know, whatever. But of course not. Like, when Jesus comes walking out to them in the middle of the night, like they're absolutely terrified. They realize that they're in the presence of something completely supernatural, something outside of, of themselves, something completely different than them. And you see, in a, in a sense, that's really what it means, like God's holiness, his presence, this perfect presence, perfect power, perfect purity, everything about, everything just about his incredible nature, this holiness of God, and it's walking towards them out on the water, and they realize it is so different than them. It's entirely different and separate than them. And what do they do? They just hit the deck. And what does Jesus say? He says, it is I. And what's really interesting about that is that those that translated the Bible are trying to uh, do a very good job, right, of helping make, make these senses, uh, these stories and encounters make sense for us with the, the differences in language and Hebrew and Greek and then to our language and all of that. And the, the Greek words, right, the, the translation of these words that are used when Jesus says, it is I, is the same words that they would, would hear God use to describe himself when God said, I am. So what Jesus is saying when he comes out onto the water, right, is he comes out and the first thing he says to them, they're absolutely terrified, and he goes, I am. That's how he, that's how he introduces himself. And you see, we started last week, uh, and, and Pastor Mark told us that, that as people would have uh, uh, seeing Jesus and the things that he was doing and the things that he was saying, that they would hearken back to the Old Testament and make these connections, right? The signs, right? That it would point to something. And so in the same way with the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Moses, right, as he led his people through the wilderness, through God's provision, fed his people from what? Manna from heaven, right? And so as Jesus is feeding the 5,000, they say, he's like, he's like Moses, they, he, fed the, he fed the Jewish people uh, as they fled Egypt, and so Jesus uh, feeds us today. Ooh, Moses freed his people from their oppressors, and so Jesus today will free us from our oppressors in Rome. And so here in this moment, it's not just saying, hey guys, it's me, right? When they hear, when Jesus says, I am, they're hearing the same, the same description of God's holiness and in perfect presence and power. It's the same one that when Moses encountered the presence of God in a burning bush, right? And, 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 and God says, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And Moses shields his face from God's holiness. It's overwhelming. And as they have this dialogue back and forth, and as God sends Moses back to Pharaoh, Moses asks the question, who do I say sent me? And what does God say? Tell them, I am sent you. And we see throughout the Old Testament as, as people interact with like the physical manifestation of God's presence and holiness and power, it is over always this like overwhelming, terrifying thing that people have to shield their face or they hit the deck. You know, Isaiah, as he encountered God's presence, would say, woe is me, I am undone. It's this intensity of God's holiness and power, completely separate, set apart, 
And, you know, we even see this with the, 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 the uh, disciples' interaction with Jesus in the New Testament, right? So this is not the first time that Jesus has been a boat with, in the boat with Peter, right? There's another time when he first meets Peter and calls him into discipleship that Peter has caught nothing, right? And Jesus goes, hey, toss your net onto the other side of the boat. And what happens, right? The, the nets are so full of fish, they're beginning to break. They call other boats over, and it's so many that like the, the, the boats begin to sink. There's just too many fish, right? And what is Peter's reaction like? Yes, right? That's not his reaction. What does he do? He falls on his face in front of, in, in, right in front of Jesus. And what does he say to him? He goes, depart from me, Jesus, right? That's his response to this holiness and power and presence of Jesus Christ. So imagine in the middle of the night, in this storm, they're already worried. They're already scared. They don't know what's going on. They don't know where Jesus is. And Jesus begins to walk towards them in the middle of the night, walking on the water. It absolutely scares them, right? And then the first thing that Jesus says is, I am. That's who I am, I am, I have no beginning, I have no end, I'm, I, am, I am alpha and omega. No, I was or I will be, I am. And they're terrified. I, I, I wonder if we could see the difference between, listen, if we could see a difference between a crowd that thought they could use Jesus, right? Oh, this guy's gonna be useful. Oh, he is going to be useful to us, right? And now imagine the disciples out on the water seeing Jesus on top of a raging storm. Like, does he seem like a man that can be used? Does he seem like a God that can be used for their purposes? He is uncontrollable. And I wonder if, if it is much different for us in our faith as we encounter Christ and his holiness in our lives. Look, I, 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 let me make the point. Look, I, I think it's natural for all of us that when we come, listen, when we come to church, when we come to God, all of us, this is what unites everybody in the room, whether or not you, you are in a relationship with God, you've never been to church before, you've been journeying with him your whole life, right? One of the things that unites all of us is that we are looking for meaning, looking for purpose. Where do I belong? Am I significant? Do I matter, Right? Where's my worth? Where's, you know, all, all of these questions that, that, that come in our hearts and our minds. And as, as we go to the things of the world, right, whether they're good things or bad things, all of them end up being unsatisfying to us. If we try to put our life, you know, our, our, our identity in relationships, our identity in career, our purpose in beauty, our purpose in, uh, in, 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 in uh, stuff and money or power or fame, all of those things leave us unsatisfied, don't they? And we learn that they're unsatisfying because they can be taken away from us. They don't love us back. They don't last forever. And even for those of us that have had a lot of success with these things that we want, we want power, we want control, we want money, whatever it is, and the more of it we get, what do we want? More, right? Because it's still unsatisfying. And so there's this inherent part of us. Why? Well, because we were made by God. We were designed for him. We were made for him. No matter who you are or what you believe, I, I, I can tell you confidently, you were made by God. You were designed to be in a relationship with us. And there's this part of us, this, this root and this discontent of the human heart that goes, I was made for more. And so we come to God with that. We come to God in all of our searching, wanting more. But what's interesting about many of us, if not all of us, is that when we reach the point where what the world offers 
even the things that God offers that are just not meant to be God to us, right? When we come to this point where it's, you know, we just know we won't be satisfied, but by God alone, what we often do is come in then with sort of, with our deals with God. We're ready to start making deals with him. All right, it, it's not working for me out in the world. God, I've got a deal, all right? I'll follow you if. And whatever comes after that, I'll follow you as long as. That's God to us. And that's what we do. We come with a transactional mindset with God. I'll follow you if you keep my family safe. The world can't satisfy my heart, fine. I'll see if God will help me use, if I can use God to get what I want. I'll use faith and spirituality or God as sort of like a holy genie to still meet the needs that I, that I think I need, that I want. God, I'll follow you if you promise me that I, over, I won't ever experience that again. God, I'll follow you as long as I don't ever feel that like crippling anxiety. I'll serve you as long as. And so what now? So now the world can't satisfy us. We know that. And so we come to God with these like, hey, I got a bargain for you. I'll do this if, right? And then God out on the storm over, you know, over the wind and the waves is saying, I am. Does he seem like a God who's, who's gonna bargain with you? That can be used by you, right? And so when God doesn't hold up in our minds his end of the deal, what do we do? We get angry at God. So we're dissatisfied with what the world has to offer us and now I'm mad at God because he's not holding up his end of the deal. And the closer we get to God, and I think the more we realize his holiness and power as he's saying to the disciples and I think to us this morning, he's like, I can't be used. He came for transformation, not a transaction. He doesn't want to help you with your kingdom. He wants to, he wants to give you a whole new lens so that you can see and be a part of his. We sense a dependence on God, but something prohibits us. At some point in our lives, whether in the past or now, something prohibits us from really surrendering to his presence and to his godliness and holiness. You know, if I give myself to God, maybe he won't come through. If I give myself to him really, if I, if I really let him be God, maybe he'll ask me to do something I don't want to do. Newsflash, he will. What if God embarrasses me? What if my dreams don't come true? What if it just costs too much to give up the things that I'm holding on to? We want him, but we don't want to lose our comforts, lose our power, lose our dependence on the acceptance of others. Most importantly, we don't like to lose our control. And in the presence of Jesus, these disciples realize what the crowd could not. He's uncontrollable, unusable. To be in a relationship with Jesus is to surrender to him completely. He is a holy lover, right? Is there anything we have to do to earn God's love? No. He gives it away freely, aggressively. All throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus Christ looking for, a, a, I mean, a, a sliver of a crack in the human heart so that he can pour his love into their lives. He gives it away freely, but he's still God. So as we encounter him and as we grow closer to him, he's God. So what does he do? He contradicts us. He challenges us. He calls us to obey him. 
It's real love because he's a real God. You know, it, I told you I wanted to tell you a little bit about Adam uh, again. Uh, and because something that Adam, again, at night uh, has been doing uh, recently over this, pa- this past year, he does it like once or twice a week, uh, is he sleepwalks, okay? Um, and that's fine, okay? And he gets out of bed. And if you've like, if no one in your life, you've never sleepwalked, like people think it's like, you know, he's, like, he's going to go to the kitchen cabinet and get a knife or something. Like, no, like, like he's five. He doesn't do like, he doesn't do anything other than what a five-year-old does, you know? And so he just goes and he starts playing with toys, but he's sleeping, you know? Um, and, and it's, it's just been, uh, interesting. So, uh, he gets up, he's walking around and eventually, and you know, if we hear him, we'll, we'll go get him. Like if we hear that he's up, we'll get out of bed and we'll kind of go get him and you make sure you don't step on Evan, uh, wherever he is. And, okay, and, and it's just, okay. So, and then, you know, we get him back to bed. It's great. And, uh, uh, but what, I, what happens more than, more than, you know, anything is that we don't know that he's walking around the house. And so eventually uh, Adam starts to wake up a little bit, okay? And when he wakes up, what does he feel? Scared? Confused? Yeah. And so, but he's still mostly asleep. But now it's just like this, like, what is happening kind of thing. So what is he, he comes to our room, okay? So the minute he's confused, he's like, mom, dad, right? And so he comes to our room. And once I realized that he's standing there at the edge of my bed, you know, just staring at me, hey, buddy, you know, and I realized that he's sleepwalking, like he's really, he's, he's confused. And so I pick him up, or mom picks him up, and we hold him, right? And what do we do? We wake him up, right? Because he's already kind of asleep. It's weird, right? So we're trying to, it, we're trying to wake him up, and we're rubbing him, and we're like saying his name, and, and holding him, and saying it's okay, and all of that. And here's, listen, here's what's really, really interesting about this. Two things are happening at the same time. On one hand, the more he wakes up and the more he realizes he's with his mom and his dad, he's more and more comforted. But the more he wakes up, the more and more scared he gets. So as he wakes up, almost every time he does it, as like you begin to see in his eyes that like he's waking up, like he gets really scared. And so we keep loving him and we keep holding him and we keep hugging him, right? Because he's, he's becoming... I mean, it's kind of scary to wake up all of a sudden and be like, I don't know where I am. I don't know how I got here. I don't know what's been going on. So the reason I tell you that story and the reason I unpacked all of this for this idea of God's holiness and power in our life is I think our faith can be a lot like that and as we encounter Jesus Christ is that we, we have this ma- magnetism towards him. Like we, we know that we're wired for him. We know that we're made for him. So I go to him in comfort, Right? but he's God, right? And so as his love and life and truth shines in on my life, right? It can be kind of terrifying, can it? As I realize like who he is, like I'm interacting with God in my life and in my heart and he shines the light on the darkness around, my, around me and more importantly, he shines his light and truth in, in the dark places in my own heart. And it can be kind of terrifying to come out of sleepwalking and to be, begin to learn what Jesus wants you to know about him and about himself. But you see Jesus out on the water here with that, you know, with this I am, does more than just trying to scare his disciples, right? What does he say right after I am? Do not be afraid. And so my question for you this morning is are you, are you willing, this idea of God's holiness, are you willing just to let him be God, 
right? A lot of us, many of us, like we like God as a comforter. We like him as a companion. We're okay with him as a savior. But one of the things that we struggle with most is letting him be what? God, a holy lover that contradicts us and challenges us and calls us into obedience. Are you aware of your dependence on Jesus but too afraid of his holiness and his presence in your life to really surrender? What are you holding on to? Some of you this morning are completely trapped because on one hand, you know your dependence on God. You know you need him. But there are things in your life that you just won't let go of because it seems like, I don't know if I can let God be God with this. Or maybe you just don't feel like you can trust him. I hope you see this morning that we need a God that wants control, a God that wants to be God in our lives, a holy God, one that demands our surrender in his presence. No ifs, no as long as, no transaction, but transformation. Will you let him be God? Secondly, not just a holy God, but I believe he was trying to teach his disciples that he is a powerful savior. Now, this is a much shorter point, but I think it bears a lot of weight. You see, uh, last week we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, right? G you know, a, a massive need in front of Jesus on land, right? The, the need is there, it's, it's overwhelmingly huge, and Jesus meets it, right? And he doesn't just meet it, like it says that everyone ate and ate to the full, and then there was leftovers, and the disciples had 12 basketfuls, way more than they needed, right? And the truth is that we kind of want life to be like a land journey, don't we? Right? Like, that that's kind of like, that's what it always feels like to be in a relationship with God. There's the need, God meets it, we're good. Right? But the truth is, a lot of our life really reflects what's going on with the disciples out at sea. Right? The sea, the sea is always sort of characterized as this thing of like chaos and, and you're out of control and all of that. And, and this is what I think a lot of us do. Is that when we're standing on land, right, and, and, and we see other people's lives uh, when they're kind of in the middle of a storm, at, lost at sea, and, and they're out of control, right? Whether it's financial ruin, a relational disaster, where all of these different things are going on in their lives. Here's one of the things I know I do, right? Is that I look at that and I go, there are choices that I can make to avoid that, right? Like if I have enough control, enough wisdom in my life, I can avoid those storms, but the truth is, listen, do choices matter? Yes. Are there real world like consequences to the things we do and we don't do? Of course they are. But can we avoid those kind of storms in our life? We can't. Look, all of us at some point in our lives are going to find ourselves lost out at sea in storms that we don't feel like we can control. Amen? So whether it's relationship or health or money or you name it, we'll, we'll find ourselves in those storms. And what were the disciples thinking at that moment when Jesus wasn't there in the middle of the night? They were probably thinking something along the lines of like, hey, where's that provision now? Like, where's that basket full of like everything I needed? Where is that now? And one of the things that I think that Jesus demonstrates by coming out on the water, by walking on top of the story is just to demonstrate his power in their lives and in yours. 
I mean, like I said, like nothing was, is more chaotic than the ocean and wind and waves, a hurricane, a storm. You know what I mean? Nothing more uncontrollable. But what I love about this is it, is, it isn't just Jesus, Jesus demonstrating that he can walk on water, but his power over it. And not just his power over it, but just the fact that the storm doesn't affect him at all. Right, the, the language, the Greek language that is used to describe Jesus walking out of the water, it's like he's strolling, right? It, it's like this very relaxed language. Like he's, just, he's not like out there like, you know? Right? Like it just demonstrates his total power over it, through it, and it can't touch him. The, the disciples had no context that Jesus was going to find them out there in the midst of that storm. And I know for a fact that there are some of you here this morning that you are going through storms, whether by days or weeks or years, where you just feel like, I am too far gone. Like, I feel like I am out of reach. Like, the, like it's, I'm, I'm, it's too late for me. Look, this is not a complicated point, but I know that some of you need to hear it. I need to hear it that there is no storm in your life that can overpower Jesus Christ. Christ's presence comes to you in the midst of the storm. Jesus is saying that he has power over destruction, power over death, power over the storms internally and externally in your life. Some of you feel hopeless, helpless, like the storm is gonna take you out. You feel alone, you feel numb, apathetic, indifferent. Some of you, I know, because I've felt this before, some of you in the midst of your storm are going, no, I've felt God's presence. I remember when life was a little bit more like a land journey. I remember when I felt his provision and his presence and love, but out here, I don't see him. I would love to feel the presence of God again. And I want you to know that he has not forgotten you. There is nothing that can stop his love, his care, and his presence in your life. He loves you and he cares for you, would you have faith that he is with you? Peter, who experienced Jesus walking on the water, when he would go write the, the epistles and he would write to the, the, the first century church um, what it meant to believe and have faith in Jesus Christ, he was thinking about brothers and sisters in Christ like me and you. Why? Because unlike him, we, would never, we won't get to see on this side of the sun, you know, we have faith in Jesus Christ, but have you seen Jesus literally walk on water? Have you seen him divide bread? Peter understood the power of faith in believers to trust him and love him, to use these things as signs, to put in your, you know, of course we've seen him at, at work in our lives, but Peter recognized the power of faith for us to believe that Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit is with us, in us, at work. He's a holy God, a powerful savior, and lastly, a wonderful savior. So what happens next in this short passage? They're frightened. He says, I am, right? Don't be afraid. And it says right after that, they gladly took him into the boat. So there are two distinct stories in the New Testament about Jesus in a boat during a storm, right? And the one, right, Jesus is doing what in the boat? Come on, Sunday school, right? So he's sleeping, right? And, and the disciples are scared, right? And so they come up to him and they shake him awake, right? And they're like, hey, Jesus, like, don't you care about us? Like, we're gonna die out here. 
And Jesus, this is what I love about our God, right? Because he doesn't like do some weird incantations, right? He doesn't like wave his arms around because he's not drawing power from anyone. He's not like borrowing someone else's authority to do this. Like he is power. He is authority. Like wind and waves were his idea, right? And so he just gets up and he's like, stop. And the storm immediately is like, all right. And it just stops, right? And it, he looks at his disciples, right? And what does he say? Like in love to them. But, it, but this is God's holiness, right? Because do, Jesus doesn't go like, hey, I totally get it. I shouldn't have been asleep. You know? Like, no, it's God's holiness and power. He goes, hey, you, of little faith. Like, don't you know who you're with? But he says it in love. But here in this story, do you see? Uh, Verse 21, uh, at the end of verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat and the storm ceased. Do you see that? No. No, does that say anything about a storm being calmed? No. So a storm out on the water where Jesus calms the storm and now a storm in the book of John where Jesus does not calm the storm. And and you, you know the lesson, right? Has Jesus calmed storms in your life, both internally and externally? Yes. Can he? Yes. Will he? Yes. Does he always? No. And there's some of you here this morning that are going, no, 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 he doesn't. Like, I'm in it now. Like, he does not always calm the storms. He doesn't always do what our natural desires and wants are. Like, and yes, we bring those things to him in prayer, and we're on our knees. Like, God, this is my heart, and these are my desires. I, I want this cup to be gone. But he does not always calm the storm. You see, the, the, the lesson of the storm, the reason he's a wonderful counselor, the thing that he's teaching the disciples more than anything, not more than he just calms the storm, is that he, we have his presence with us. I, I don't know how else to say it, but if, if God's presence to you doesn't matter, you need to keep listening, keep praying, keep looking at him. The reason he is a wonderful counselor, a wonderful teacher, like he doesn't always get rid of the storm. Sometimes he rides the storm with you. He wants to grow us up, teach us, mold us, make us more mature so that, so that we can meet the storm, walk through it, walk over it. He wants to deepen you, challenge you, comfort you. He teaches you through storms what we're scared of and what we're holding on to. You see, Jesus will use storms in our lives to sort of shake the foundations, doesn't he? And we realize he sheds light on, through a storm, he sheds light on the things of the world that we're holding on to for life and meaning and hope and value, whether good things or bad things. But if we're making any of those things God in our life, the storms will shake us. And we often don't know that those things are so important to us until they're threatened. And so when God told the parable of the two houses, one built on stone and one in sand, right? They both look the same. What's the only thing that would reveal how they're different? Would be a storm. And shake the foundation of our lives to make us love him and lean on him and trust him more. If you build your life on the foundation of beauty, there's the storm of aging. If you build your life on the foundation of career, there's the storm of failure, better competition, recession. Build your life on health, And there's the storm of chronic illness, global pandemic. Build your life on true love. And there's the storm of rejection, 
the storm of long singleness. Build your life on control. And there's the storms of the uncontrollable, the unplanned. And I also recognize that there's some of you here this morning that you are going through storms where you have no idea what God is doing with it. And, and honestly, that's why I want to keep reiterating here as him is a wonderful counselor that the primary thing that he's trying to teach is that you have him. You see, that we, that we can be comforted by his presence, by his, you know, by his love, a peace that goes beyond all understanding. Because listen, I, I know while well-meaning that we've either received this kind of encouragement or we've given it away. And it's not that it's not true. It's just about just being real human beings with us as we suffer. That As you suffer, someone comes to you and says, hey, God's gonna use this. And you're like, great. You, right? You know? Like, hey, at the end of this, I bet you you're going to be so much more patient. It's like, is there, is there another way that maybe I could be? I, I read a book, maybe? You know, that would have been great, right? Look, God's faithful to, faithfulness to us is not measured by spiritual growth after it's all over, all right? God's faithfulness, is the fact, faithfulness to us is about the fact that he's with us. No storm can overtake him. No waters he can't traverse to get to us. Now listen, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the upside down kingdom is does he use our storms to make us more loving, more kind, more patient? Absolutely. The gospel is so upside down. He takes people who were addicted and turns them into champions for recovery. He takes people who were fatherless and turns them into fathers. He takes people who were enemies and turns them into brothers and sisters in Christ, right? God's power through storm and suffering is incredible. But in the midst of those storms, we don't just lean on the fact of like, okay, I guess God's gonna use this, right? It's this idea that he's with me. He's riding the storm with me. That's what makes him a wonderful counselor, that I can just surrender into his arms. Look, our best life, the Christian life, the, the, our walks with Jesus Christ, isn't a life filled with getting what we want, that the storm would cease, but instead it's getting him in the boat in the midst of a life full of things we never wanted. You see, the disciples wouldn't just be making this connection between like Jesus and Moses, though it was a great connection. But seeing Jesus out on the water like this, they likely often, likely would have also made a connection between Jesus and Jonah. In fact, Jesus Christ would call himself the greater Jonah. So Jonah uh, is uh, uh, on a boat with a bunch of uh, sailors, right? And a storm uh, erupts because of his disobedience, a storm that he deserved. In order to save the life of those that were on the boat, he says to the sailors, like, look, if you want to survive this storm, you have to toss me into the sea. And those on the boat go, no, 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 no. They grab him by his ankles and by his hands, and they're like, sweet, love you, man. And they just toss him into the water. And Jesus Christ said, I'm the greater Jonah. See, Jesus Christ on the cross would volunteer himself. Listen, he would volunteer himself into the only storm that can really take us out, our sin. The sin that the Bible says that the wages of sin is an eternity without him, cut off from God forever. And Jesus Christ was thrown into a storm, but not one that he deserved, one that we deserved. 
You say, how can I trust him as a counselor? How can I trust him with the storms in my life? How can I trust him if he doesn't calm it? What does it mean just to have his presence? Look what he did for you. He gave up his life on the cross, not just so that we could know him, but we know our Father in heaven forever. He's a holy God, a wonderful counselor. Christian, I hope you hear this this morning, that no matter what storm you're in, he's with you. He might not calm the storm, but he loves you. You see, Jesus Christ feeding the 5,000 would say this, there's actually something worse than your empty stomachs. It's that you wouldn't know me. Jesus is saying to you, I will do anything to get to you. I will walk on water to do what I said I would do. I will come to you in the dark, in a storm, on the water. I will come to you when you are alone, at home, feeling lost. I will find you at work when you are feeling frustrated, empty, and bitter. I will find you in your hurting marriage. I will find you when you're lost in your sin. I will find you when you are gripped by addiction. I will find you when you feel hopeless. I will find you when you're angry. I'll find you when you're cruel. I'll find you when you feel indifferent. There are no waters I cannot traverse to find you. He is using your storms in your life. Let him be God. Trust him. Jesus came and suffered not so that we might never suffer, but so that when we do, we might become more like him. But more than how he's using it, he wants to offer himself to you. For those of you that do not know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, I hope that you would hear something this morning. Coming to saving faith in Christ means that as we encounter his holiness, as we encounter his power and counsel in our life, it's a lot like waking up from sleepwalking. But we have to admit that there's nothing that in our lives that can ever take us to shore but him alone. No transaction. No ifs, no as long as. Whatever your foundation, whatever your idols, they cannot row strong enough through the storm to save you. The apostles here could not save themselves. They could not, on their own efforts, arrive where they needed to be. We cannot, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, find rest for our souls. Will you receive him into your boat, gladly, into your life? Yes, listen, and brothers and sisters in Christ, his love is holy. He's God. His presence will change you, challenge you, contradict you, but he will never forsake you. He'll never abandon you. Listen, when, when, when Adam is waking from his night terrors in my arms, as he's waking up and needing my comfort more and more and more, do you know what he does not want? He does not want to go back to sleep. He doesn't want to go back there. He doesn't all of a sudden long for his toys. He's not longing for a treat out of the pantry. As he wakes up, all he wants is the love and embrace of his mom or dad. I absolutely love, listen, I absolutely love how this passage ends. And I hope you do too. 
The moment they receive him into the boat, John finishes the story. They gladly received him in the boat and at once they were on shore where they needed to be. Don't you see? A lifetime of I'll follow God if, a lifetime of storms, a lifetime of suffering and pain or bitterness towards God when the transactions and dealings with God stop, when we finally take our hands off the wheel and admit that we're helpless and put our hope in him, the instant we receive him by faith in our lives and are covered by his righteousness and love, guess what? The story is over. The transformation begins, but at that point, when we welcome him into our lives and receive him and surrender him to our lives, the story's over. Whether the storm is calmed or it rages on, we have who we need. Now, listen, if you're anything like me, when you hear a story about a believer or even a Christian recommitting their lives to Christ, coming to some incredible moment of faith in him. I, and I know you do do this too, in this incredible story of pain and suffering, in this moment where someone is willing to surrender their lives to him, we go, but, but, but did she ever find a husband? Did he, did he get a job? You get this, right? Were they ever able to have a baby? Amen. Amen. It doesn't matter. We have him. And whatever he does with the storm, he is a good, holy counselor, God, a holy lover in our life. We have him. Listen to these words from a hymn as we just close and close out our time together. It says, Be gone, unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Let's pray. God, you're here. You know our heart. And I know that I not need to labor on in prayer to you, God. You know our hearts. You know our storms. God, I pray, pray that we would receive you, trust you, God, I pray, Lord, that we would just be overwhelmed, not by what you're doing, but just who you are, that you are present, that we would know your love and your comfort and peace no matter the storm. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace Fellowship, I love you. Go in peace. Don't forget to go to uh, the Grace Kids table. Okay, deal, me and you, not me, you, me, you. Okay, go. All right, thank you. Go in peace, love you guys. We hope you enjoyed this message. You can find more like it on our website under sermons. To keep up to date with our sermon series, hit the subscribe button in your podcast host and follow our social media pages. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury on the platform of your choice. If you're looking to connect with us further, then you can email us at connect at gfcshrewsbury.org. We will be back next week with another message. We hope to see you again soon.